right, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Man, time flies. Crazy week. I hope your weekend has not been as crazy as mine. <laughs> and I prefer not to get into the details of my crazy week, but trust me, crazy is a good description. But we've got a good program lined up today. Lots of listener emails. Really fantastic. Fantastic listener email. Um, all right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Christ. And the job of Fighting for the Faith is to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. And uh, i got to warn people, this, this show m- may cause you to... Become dissatisfied with your church. But I got an email today from somebody who said, you know what, Chris, rather than becoming dissatisfied with my church, your show has made me appreciate my church even more because my pastor uses the law to reduce me and show me what a sinner I am, and then he builds me up with the gospel. Amen. So if you got one of those pastors, this program might actually feel make you feel better, make you go, you know, that that that. That pastor that I got, that liturgical guy who seems so boring and dry and who week after week opens up God's word and preaches Christ and him crucified Sunday after Sunday, instead of going Sunday, you're going to go, wow, thank God for this guy. <laughs> Why? Because we uh, we review a lot of sermons here at Fighting for the Faith, and uh, we've reviewed some stinkers. We have reviewed some that are fantastic, and we, you know, then then there's some that are kind of in between and in the mix there, and so we got lots of email to talk about here. All right, let me go through the email because there's uh, folks, smart listeners, smart listeners, love you guys. Okay, you mentioned the Trinity Trinity optional uh, on the Trinity optional program from January seventh that if you let female pastors in, then they begin uh, working to let homosexuals in, etc. This is from Paul. And uh, I'm not sure what town Paul is from. And I'm assuming with a name like Paul that this is a guy instead of a girl. I messed that up one time. Okay. <laughs> okay. He says, so, you know, if you if you let female pastors in, they work to let homosexuals in. He says, Compared, compare with computer spyware or viruses, which once they get into your system, begin to let their friends into, you know, like you said, the same low view of scripture. So there you go from a, from another techie, but I, but I don't have a cool car. Okay. So, you know, uh, Paul, great point. And here's the deal. It, th- there's a there's there's a logical order to this. When you start your your church starts flirting with having a female pastor, there's one reason and one reason only, okay? This this is a symptom of a bigger disease. And the disease here is low view of scriptureitis, okay? And low view of scriptureitis, this is this is I hate to say it, this is almost an incurable disease. Once a church adopts low scripturitis, and it's one of those voluntary viruses, by the way. Okay, once you adopt the the idea that I'm going to have a low view of scripture, I'm going to just I'm not going to believe in the historicity of the Bible. I'm not going to believe in the inerrancy of scripture. I'm too smart to believe in miracles. I, in fact, what happens is is that you reduce the Bible down to a bunch of really, really, um, I would say monotonous, tedious, task mastery type of moral tales. You know, so I'm going to read, I'm going to read about Abraham to find the morals to apply to my life. 
Okay, it's all mythology anyway. It doesn't matter if it really happened. And the same thing about purpose-driven churches, you know, because they mine the scriptures, they strip mine it is actually the better way of uh, putting it. You, you know what strip mining is? You ever see one of these operations? I've seen them from like an airplane. You fly over them and you go, what happened to that? You know, that part of, you know, the, like a big old hole in the ground or there, you can tell that at one point there was a mountain there and the mountain's gone. Okay, and you got a sinkhole and, a, and, a, and what are they doing? They're, they're strip mining. Okay, they're just basically moving huge tons of earth and they're and that all becomes debris. Okay, you know, a bazillion cubic yards of earth that becomes the debris. And what they're looking for, they're looking for the tiny little flecks of gold. And, you know, you know, maybe in, you know, in, in a you know, two ton piece of earth, you know, big, you know, big cubic uh, piece of earth, they might find, a, you know, a quarter of an ounce or something like that. But they've strip mined all of that to get to the gold. Okay, this is what uh, purpose-driven churches do. It doesn't matter if the scripture is inerrant. It doesn't matter if the scripture is true. It doesn't matter because what we're doing is we're going to strip mine all of that out. We'll say that we maintain a high view of scripture. And what do they do? They strip mine it. And then, you know, so it doesn't matter if, if uh, Christ really rose from the dead. What you're really looking for are the moral principles that you can apply to your life so that you can have the abundant Christian life. So that you can uh, be successful, that you can be satisfied, that you can have your best life now, so that you can be, you see what I'm saying? But uh, when it comes to female pastors, um, this is that is a symptom of a disease, the, the low scripturitis, low view of scripturitis is what this is about. And once you, the logic that works with female pastors is exactly the same logic they're going to use with homosexuals. And that's the funny thing. I, I you know, I've been... Um, having a dialogue with a person who claims to be a practicing homosexual and a Christian at the same time. And here's the funny thing. Every single scripture that says that homosexuality is a sin. I mean, there's passages in Leviticus chapter 18 and 20. Okay. Leviticus chapter 18, I think it's verse 23. I'm doing this from memory says that, you know, well, I'll tell you what, <sighs> okay. Roseboro. I have my own Bible. Yeah, you have your own Bible. Good, 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 good. Okay. Let me, you know, I think it might even be in my history. Here we go. Leviticus chapter 18. Here's the deal with, when you're debating these people who claim to be Christians and they have a low view of scripture and, and they're practicing homosexuals or they're trying to, you know, this, uh, this, uh, this homosexual that I've been debating literally said that, um, told me that uh, being a homosexual is no more a sin than having red hair. Okay? Now, this is uh, one of the points that I made, and this is going to be fun. So if you get your Bibles, open up to Leviticus chapter 18, and we're going to do a little bit of work here in this, uh, in this sense. Leviticus chapter 18, remember our three rules regarding reading God's word properly. What are they, John? Context. Con- context, context. Yeah, context, context, context. So uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1, tells us who is speaking. Listen to this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall do as they do in the land. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan in which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. Now, this is law, right? Okay. Ultimately, what's the purpose of the law? To convict us of our sin. That's the primary purpose. There are three uses for the law. One is to keep us from beating up and stealing pe- uh, things from people. Okay, so you know the the idea is is that that's used by the government to keep you you know to keep us from having anarchy reign supreme. That's the first use. Second use is the primary use is to show you your sin, 
and show you your need for a savior. That's the primary use of the law. And when it's do, when it's doing its business, um, when that's happening to you, you're going, man, I am just not righteous at all. I need Christ. Because what ultimately, if you realize that you truly are a savior and that God has got you nailed and that you deserve his wrath and eternal punishment, you know, actually temporal and eternal punishment, then what does that do? It drives you to your knees and shows you your need for a savior. And what's and what does the, you then do? You give somebody the gospel. Christ died for your sins. You have been justified by faith, declared righteous. Okay. So here in Leviticus chapter 18, the person speaking is not me. The person speaking is not Moses. The person speaking is not um, one of those opinion op-ed people. It's not. It, it, it's not even Ann Coulter. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, you know, conservative uh, man. That boy, she she has an acidic pen, man. That that lady knows how to write. Anyway, um, it, it it's it's God, and so when we say the, and the Lord spoke to Moses, I got news for you, folks. You can actually, without doing any violence to the text, say and and Jesus spoke to Moses, saying, "Okay, because who is Jesus?" God. God, God in human flesh. Jesus is is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Okay. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses call him Jehovah, but you know that I, that's just really bad. There's no J's in um, Hebrew. I don't know if you knew that. Anyway, so it's Yahweh. Okay, that's you know, that's probably the closest that we get. So Jesus is the Yahweh. He's the Lord of the Old Testament. Anytime you see the word L-O-R-D capitalized in the uh, Hebrew Old Testament, or when you're reading in the Old Testament, you see L-O-R-D capitalized all the way. Um, that is referring to what we call the Tetragrammaton, which is the holy name of God. And uh, devout Jews, they will not pronounce that name. Okay. And, uh, you know, and it, there's, there, I've even had dialogues with devout Jews on via email. And whenever you mention God, they'll actually take out the O, you know, and, and this has to do with them really taking seriously this idea that you don't take the name of the Lord in vain. In fact, we're going to make sure you're not going to take it in vain because we're not even going to let you say it. Okay. <laughs> it's like, uh, Okay, which to me actually says that you actually don't really quite are you aren't being aggressive in really learning what it means to take the Lord's name in vain, you, you know. So, um, so what we can say here in Leviticus chapter eighteen, it is Jesus speaking. Why? Because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. Okay, so with that established in the early context of this chapter, we know who's speaking. So now, scroll on down if you have a computer Bible or. And just read down the page. We're going to come to, uh, um, uh, we're going to start at verse 20. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Okay. So there's a prohibition. Okay. Don't lie with your neighbor's wife. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's what that word means. You know, lie, have intercourse with your neighbor's wife. Um, that would be adultery and that would actually be a very bad thing. Okay. You shall not Give any of your children or offer them to Molech and so profane the name of the Lord. I am the Lord, uh, uh, the name of your God. I am the Lord. And verse 22, you shall not lie or have sexual relations with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Okay. So correctly, we can answer this question. Let's answer it. Uh, let's ask it first. What is Jesus's opinion of um, homosexuality? He would think it's wrong. Uh, wrong? Is that the word that's used there? It's a little stronger than that. A sin. Uh, oh, it's even stronger than that. Tail end of verse 22. Read it. 
Read it, read it, read it. <laughs> Abomination. Abomination. Okay. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> Jesus' opinion of homosexuality is that it's an abomination. abomination. Okay, so there we go. Okay, now the funny thing is is that when you talk to somebody who claims to be a Christian and a practicing homosexual at the same time and they're not repentant about homosexuality, what are they doing? They're denying that it's a sin. And it, it just so happens that every single passage of Scripture that prohibit, you know, that is a prohibition against homosexuality, in their mind, oh, we don't understand what that means. Culturally, we can just wipe that away. It doesn't mean that in the original languages. It's obscure. We don't know. No, actually, we do. It's pretty clear. You shall not lie or have sexual relations with a man as with a woman. What's the Greek? Are the the, it, the Hebrew, Hebrew there? It's actually it just it, it says that pretty pretty plainly. The 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 word lie there. Um, it. it uh, hang on a second here. Let me pull this up in the Hebrew here. Do not lie. Here we go. It's uh, shakhav. Uh, okay. And it means to lie down with, sleep with, uh, have copulation, you know, that type of thing. So you shall not lie down with a man as one lies down with a woman. That is detestable. And by the way, hate to say this. Um, now, this is important for us to realize this. Okay. When we look at the Mosaic law, there's several different types of laws. There's ceremonial law, there's civil law. And so it, it, understand that God is establishing a nation with Israel. Okay, and it's a theocratic nation where God is king. Okay, and so in the theocracy of Israel, there is also civil laws that are given in the Mosaic law. Okay, now when there is a law, there's also you know there's also punishments assigned to somebody who's caught in breaking that law. Okay, so if you if you commit a misdemeanor, you I mean you get a slap on the wrist. If you commit a felony, then you know you could go to jail. In, in the in and then if you murder somebody here in the United States, in several states, I mean, like Florida, Texas, used to be in California, but maybe not so much anymore. But um, that uh, you you commit that type of crime. There's crimes that are called capital crimes. The ones that um, that what do we do with people who commit a capital crime? We execute them. Okay. Now, in the theocratic kingdom of Israel, Leviticus chapter twenty verse thirteen tells us the civil code, and the penalty for somebody who is caught uh, committing the act, the, the crime of homosexuality, the abomination. Okay, Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Okay, now, in God's theocracy, now this, this I know, in God's theocratic kingdom of Israel, the civil code said that you shall not lie with a man as you lie with a woman. If you do, the 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 punishment for that is actually cap, it's a capital crime. Now, should we as Christians hang our head in shame and go, oh, it, God didn't mean that? You know, should we? No. Okay, because who made the who made the heavens and the earth? God. God did. Okay, God made the heavens and the earth. Um, we all die eventually, right? Because the wages of sin is death, right? Correct. Okay. So all of us actually, um, uh, the sin that we've committed, God ultimately is exercising a you know capital punishment on all of us. We're all going to die. Okay. Wages of sin is death. So we're all going to we got a payday coming. Okay. So here's the deal. 
All right, so keep that in mind. But understand, this is not something we have to say, oh, well, then if you're a Christian, then you have to call for the execution of uh, homosexuals in, in the United States, otherwise you're not being consistent. No, the person who's making that claim, that's basically a red herring argument. That's, it's, you know, they're building a straw man. Okay, God, we're in the nation where God was the king himself directly, this was the civil law that he set up. And it tells us something about his nature, okay? We don't live in Israel today. Okay, and we don't live under God's theocratic kingdom. We live in the United I live in the United States of America. Many of the listeners here they might live in Australia, New Zealand, we have listeners in Japan and in the UK. Um, the, the Christian position is not to say that what we need to do is go back to this being the case. Okay? Um, but we do as Christians need to make sure, okay, and the reason why there's a lot of confusion on this is because we live in democracies. And the, who has the power in a democracy? The people do. Right? Okay, and so the reality is, is that, you know, so we're constantly switching back and forth between God's kingdom and and uh, and the kingdom of God. And sometimes we kind of mess the two up. Okay, the position of the Christian church. Okay, and believe me when I tell you this, the job of the church is not to take over power in the, you know, in any particular democracy and then rule as if we're a theocracy. That's really a confusion of, of uh, the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the right and the kingdom of the left. Instead, the position of the church, okay, because the, the what is the king, the kingdom of God, okay, in, in a sense? What's the kingdom of God? What are we proclaiming in the kingdom of God? We're actually proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, okay? The church's job is to go and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, right? Correct. Okay, that's what Christ said. So, Okay, the job of the church is not to take over government institutions. The job of the church is to is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. So, if we're going to, if we're going to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, then what we have to do is basically say, "Hey, God's word says this is a sin. God's word says you are a sinner. God's and here's the evidence for it. You sin this way, this way, this way, this way, and this way. We and the, the homosexuals feel like they're being singled out. Well, maybe the reason they're being feel like they're being singled out is because there's not a lot of churches left who are actually preaching about sin. Okay, and there's a lot of you know there's a lot of churches out there that are. Basically, you know, they don't they kind of soft sell the gospel. We're not going to talk about the negative side of the gospel. We're only going to sell you the positive benefits of it. And then they feel like they're being singled out. Why? Because what they see is they see Christians that are civically active in a, in democracies doing such things as voting against proposition or voting for proposition 8 in in, in legislation that l- puts limits on definitions of marriage and exclude homosexuals. Okay, but the reality is the position of the church is that homosexuality is a sin, just as much as adultery is a sin, lying is a sin, cheating is a sin, uh, bearing false witness is a sin, uh, coveting is a sin, not loving God with all your heart is a sin, uh, dishonoring your parents and not obeying your parents is a sin. Okay, the purpose of the law is to reduce us all down to, like I said in the past, smoldering stubs of sin. We're all sinners there it is right so um and that would include the homosexual so homosexuals are just as much a sinner as i am or i'm just as much a sinner as they are it's not that i'm trying to single them out and we as christians shouldn't be trying to single them out the purpose of the church is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins so what are we doing we're calling them to repentance dear home dear human brother homosexual it is not that I'm trying to single you out and say that I'm holy and you're not. 
It is that I'm trying to proclaim to you repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you need to know you are a sinner. And here's the ways in which you are sinning. Okay? And pull out the Decalogue. Work your way through it. Okay? And included in that is the sin of homosexuality. Now, if you... Ultimately, the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, means a change of mind. Okay? So, if I'm a homosexual... And I hear you preaching the law to me that I'm a sinner and that I sin in multiple ways, including what I believe is my, you know, the way God made me sexually, which by the way, God did not make people homosexuals. Okay. Um, you have, you have two decisions to make at this point if you, and I'm not a decision theology guy. Okay. The person who says, you know what? You're right. This is a sin. This is wrong. God have mercy on me, a sinner. What have they done? They've changed their mind. And God has granted them repentance. God has granted them repentance because we've read those passages before where God is the one who gives repentance. So God, when he gives repentance to the homosexual, the, re- the homosexual no longer thinks that what they're doing is a virtue. They think what they're doing is a vice. They no longer think of it as a strength. They think of it as a sin. They no longer revel in it. They are ashamed of it. Okay? And, and, and it doesn't end there. They are built up and given the promises of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ, while he was hanging on the cross, died for the sins of homosexuals just as much as he died for you and mine sins And if we're heterosexual. Okay? It's not that we're saying that heterosexuality is – um, how do I put it? It's not – just being a heterosexual doesn't somehow make you not a sinner. Okay? Heterosexual sin in multiple different ways. There are heterosexual sins. Okay? It's just that homosexuality is, there's no leeway there. So, and then when you got somebody who claims that they're a Christian and says that they're not sinning and they've redefined the Bible, what have you got there? You have somebody who hasn't metanoid. They haven't changed their mind. They think that God made them this way. They think it's a blessing rather than a curse. They think that it's uh, something that's, that it's not sinful. Have they repented? No. No, they haven't. Okay. So we are to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So anyway, how did I get onto that little diatribe? Just keeping in mind, folks, that um, God's word and, and the whole point of this really going back to it is that Jesus is the one who says that homosexuality is an abomination because it says so in Leviticus chapter 18 that the Lord said that. And who is the Lord? It's Jesus Christ. And does Jesus change his mind on these things? Um, do you think he went, oh, you know, I said that thousands of years ago. <laughs> I can't believe you're still pulling that one out. No, no. no. Um, yeah, I'd say Christ is pretty consistent. Yeah, in fact, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says this about Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you think Jesus is going, you know, a couple thousand years ago, I thought that about homosexuality, but now I think it's okay. I'm with it. What do you think? No? No, not, not at all. <laughs> Thank God God isn't capricious. And What kind of a God would we be following if God was capricious and changed his mind all the time? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it'd be pretty bad. Okay. Anyway. So, all right. Uh, all right. Oh, and by the way, Paul was the one who said that he that listening to the show makes him thankful for his church. He's the one. I was just read the rest of the email. Okay, moving along here. Um, this is a good question. Uh, Lifeway. Are you familiar with Lifeway at all? Okay, Lifeway is a, a Christian uh, online Christian bookstore. Okay, an online Christian bookstore. And Lifeway 
Um, they uh, they sell all kinds of Christian books, and I think they're affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, if I'm not mistaken. I think this Southern Baptists uh, have something to do with Lifeway. Anyway, www.lifeway... Uh, Lifeway Stores. It's lifewaystores.com. And this is interesting. They've started doing something new on their website. And what they've started doing, if you were to go to lifewaystores.com and in their keyword search, type in the shack, okay, Um, which we've reviewed on the show, which actually has some pretty serious theological um, problems. Um, They have this tiny little graphic that, uh, so when it comes up in the search results, it says, please read with discernment. Please read with discernment. So my question is, um, okay, is this is it right for a Christian bookstore to sell a book that they know uh, may not be theologically correct? I would say that's something they shouldn't be doing. Okay, I personally I couldn't profit from heresy. That would be how do you profit? I mean, come on. Okay. Um, you know, we're going to, we're going to sell you this knowing that there's problems with it, but that's okay. We've salved our consciences by putting a little button on there that says to read it with discernment. Okay. So when you click on the little read with discernment tag, the funny thing is, is that they actually trademarked that. So apparently if folks, if, if I were to use read with discernment and use it on my, and on like my own personal store, I don't have a store, but you know, and if, if somebody else were to put that into their store, apparently Lifeway stores has trademarked read with discernment. <laughs> Maybe I should trademark listen with discernment. You know, I could I could do that. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the problem is it costs money to do stuff like that, and I don't want to spend that kind of money. And so here's what this says. Thank you for taking the time to seek further information on the book on your book purchase. Our commitment to biblical solutions. We at Lifeway Christian Stores are committed to providing biblical solutions that spiritually transform individuals and cultures. For decades, our customers have thanked us for the high degree of trust that they they, they know that they can place in us in the products that we sell. And we greatly value that trust. Our choice to meet customers' needs. Additionally, our customers also have consistently asked us for the ability to choose from a wide variety of Christian products as they look uh, to us to be the provider of all their Christian resource needs. Now, this is important. They want Lifeway to be their, their provider of all their Christian resource needs. What kind of needs are they looking to fill? Christian resource needs. Okay, that being the case, it says, while we recognize that almost every title requires some measure of discernment, certain titles should, be cle- should clearly be read with extra discernment. Okay, so we want you to know that the authors of the books marked with read with discernment may have espoused thoughts or ideas or concepts, well, that could be considered inconsistent with historical evangelical uh, theology. However, we are making these titles available to our customers along with the background and additional insight offered here through the read with discernment tag because we believe the books do present content that is relevant and of value to Christians and or because pastors, seminary students, and other ministry leaders need access to this type of material strictly for critical studies and research to help them understand and develop their responses to the diversity of religious thought in today's postmodern world. Does this sound like a cop-out to you? It sounds like a cop it's something, you know, it, it, is this is this an improvement or is this uh, a justification for something that's not justifiable? I don't know. We're, we're going to take our first break. When we come back, we'll continue talking about this. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We will be right back.
sissyopified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Fighting for the Faith is underwritten in part by LifeLock. Did you know that identity theft is a $50 billion a year business? And the severe downturn in the economy is providing identity thieves with even more incentives to hijack your identity and destroy your good name. But LifeLock provides a proactive identity theft service specializing in the prevention of identity theft rather than the reporting of it. LifeLock was founded in 2005 and is already considered the industry leader in identity theft prevention. In fact... LifeLock CEO Todd Davis is so confident in LifeLock's ability to protect your good name and stop identity thieves dead in their tracks that he freely shares his social security number on television, radio, and the internet. Furthermore, LifeLock guarantees its services up to $1 million. For more information on LifeLock, visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on the LifeLock logo on our homepage. Alright, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Now this story we're going through, um, Lifeway Christian Books, reminds me that we need to uh, encourage you strongly. If you have not read J. Gresham Machen's book, History and uh, Christianity and Liberalism, okay, we have got this book available as an ebook for download for a great price. I mean, how much does a trade paperback cost nowadays? Like fifteen bucks. Okay, kid you not. You want to you, you want to get a trade paperback? Fifty. Ugh. And by the way, we're actually there's a trade paperback that I'm looking at promoting next month. We'll talk about that later. It's Matt Harrison's latest latest book. It's amazing. But uh, we'll talk about that next month. But um, Jay Gresham Mason's book, Christianity and Liberalism. If you have not read this book, you need to read this book. And we have made it available as an ebook, a PDF that you can download, highlight, make comments into. And all you have to do is go to piratechristianradio.com. It's, if you're listening to this in the month of January, it's January. It's featured ebook. It, the cover is there. If you're listening to this in February or beyond, then go into, uh, click the store link at piratechristianradio.com and purchase this book and read it. Don't just purchase it, but read it. I'm telling you, the, the, the sound, lucid, biblical arguments that J. Gresham Mason gave back in the early 1920s regarding modernist liberalism applies today to postmodern liberals, and, and which are emergence. And you want to protect yourself. You want to give yourself the right biblical way of thinking about how to deal with the people who are out there promoting the social gospel and stuff like that. You need to read this book, J. Gresham Mason's. Christianity and Liberalism. It's available at PirateChristianRadio.com. You definitely want to, to read that. And I don't have to put something on this that says read with discernment. Okay, so we, Ben Mordecai is the guy who sent me this email uh, regarding uh, Lifeway. 
And you know, so my question for you guys is, okay, and I'd, I'd really like to actually get your listener response on this. Send me an email at TalkBack at Fighting for the Faith and let me know. Okay, you, a, a Christian bookstore has decided that there's some problems with books that from emergent authors – I mean, it's basically emergent authors and like the shack, and there's some books that they're that have some serious theological problems with them, but they're going to sell them anyway because they think that it's important that they offer the broad spectrum so that those uh, those Christians out there who are in seminary and stuff can uh, can read them and and understand how to refute it. I think that falls underneath the category is. Yeah, right. You see, my, see, that's the thing. Let me come back to this statement on their website. It says, however, we are making these titles available to our customers along with the background and additional insight offered through the Read with Discernment trademarked uh, because we believe the book books do present content that is relevant and of value to Christians and or because pastors, seminary students, and other ministry, uh, ministry leaders need access to this type of uh, material strictly for critical study to do research to help them understand and develop responses to the diversity of religious thought in today's postmodern world. Is it right for a Christian bookstore to make a profit off of books that they know um, are heretical? Is it? I would say that they shouldn't be doing that. Is it a gray area? I mean, you you say no. I say no. Okay. And I'm not going to weigh in on this yet. Okay. Now, I'm glad that they're flagging it with the you know, read with discernment thing, but I'm finding their reasoning to be a little wanting. Okay, and understand that the shack was like the latest fad that blew through Christianity. And if you call your, I mean, if you're a bookstore and you got to make a profit, then you know the last thing you want to do is cut off a good revenue stream, right? But I mean, should see that's the thing. Should Christian st- bookstores be thinking? And be discerning regarding what they're disseminating. Think about it, okay? I'm a young Christian, and I'm looking for information on how to grow in the Christian faith. And so do I go to my latest – I go to the the I go to the Christian bookstore down the street, okay? And they've got the shack. They've got books from John Crowder and the Token the Holy Ghost crowd. And, um, and, you know, and there they are. They're prominently displayed. And so I think, okay, because I'm in a Christian bookstore, these have got to be Christian books that are going to help me in my walk with Christ. Should they be offering these? No. I don't uh, – no. yeah. what do you guys think? Send me an email. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. I mean is, is, this a, is, is this enough? I mean is Lifeway stores – I mean have they met their biblical obligation? Is there a biblical obligation You know, uh, regarding you know, what they're selling? I mean can they ethically, morally look Christ in the face and say, well, we did the right thing. You know, we, we continue to sell this book because there's some value to it, right? Well, the value is in the uh, the amount of money they're making. I think that's the value. You think so? Okay. Yes. Well, you're jaded. Did I do that to you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'd like to know your opinion on this. And if you, you go to LifeWayStores.com and do a keyword search on the shack, or you can do it on some of these emergent authors, and you'll see they have this tag that says Read with Discernment. Have they, is, that, is that an improvement or is it a cop-out? Have they gone far enough or not far enough? I really would like to know what you think before I, I completely weigh in on this. So uh, looking forward to uh, getting your response on that. Here we go. Man, there's such good emails this week. My, forget the news. The emails are amazing. Um, here's a good one. Um, dear Chris, this is Aaron writing, and uh, Aaron Coenga. Coenga? He says, you're totally right about Mormonism. It's a works-based religion, and it's not Trinitarian. Absolutely. Mormonism is not Trinitarian. 
And uh, Tony Jones, I think, just despite everybody on his uh, BeliefNet blog today, uh, basically said the comment of the day, and, and, and he put up a quote from a practicing Mormon who basically was talking about social Trinitarianism and, and made it sound like he and Tony Jones had a lot in common. <laughs> Maybe they do. That's right. And the more they have in common, the less Tony Jones has in common with Orthodox historic Christianity. So he says, um, so uh, Aaron writes, oh, I'm sorry, it's Aaron Holland. Wow, that's weird. Aaron Holland in Michigan. Oh, in Holland, Michigan. Sorry. Aaron Kuinga in Holland, Michigan. I'm going to get this right someday. <sighs> you know, maybe if I take what, – what, they have those herbs that will help your brain function better. <laughs> anyway, he's – okay. Aaron's point. He says Mormonism is actually henotheism. That's a good $5 theological word. Okay. I don't know that one. Okay. Well, hang on a second. Let me make sure I'm not going to mess this up. Otherwise, I will get an email from Nicholas uh, – uh, uh, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley because yeah I don't want to mess this up because he is he's on it man this is I love this guy in, in Great Britain anytime you know I, I say something that's even just a little off he sends me stuff and feeds me and says no 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 no, no, no. so henotheism okay now from what I remember about henotheism is kind of this idea that there are many gods. Okay, henotheism teaches that there are many gods, but ultimately you're um, uh, you you worship or you acknowledge or there's one primary god that you focus on above the rest. Okay, so now I understand Wikipedia is not considered the most scholarly of defi- de- places to find definitions, but it's a decent place to get a go- get you in the ballpark. So according to Wikipedia, henotheism is a term coined by Max Mueller to mean worshiping a single god while accepting the existence or the possible existence of other deities. I'll go with it. I'll just say that's accurate. That, you know, Wikipedia, that, they got that one right. Okay. So it's this idea that you worship a single God, or in the case of the Mormons, they worship a trinity of sorts, kind of a social trinity, but they readily acknowledge that there's the existence of other gods. Well, why? Well, because the fundamental central doctrine of Mormonism is what they call the doctrine of, or the uh, law of eternal progression. As man one, as uh, man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. Okay, so continuing with Aaron's point, he's, Mormonism is actually henotheism or the belief that many gods exist, but they worship one god exclusively. Mormonism is a cult, point blank, and if you take the main features of a group like the Moonies or the criteria of what makes a cult, uh, a Mormonism, uh, a cult Mormonism fits every description perfectly. The worst part is the love bombing they practice. I did not know that Mormons practice love bombing. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Love bombing is the deliberate show of affection or friendship by an individual or group of people toward another individual. And critics have asserted that this that this action may be motivated in part by the desire to recruit, convert, or otherwise influence. The idea is, is that you really warm up to somebody, become their buddy, their friend, and tell them you love them and really get close to them. And the reason you're doing that is strictly in order to hook them into you know into your religion or or maybe you want to steal their money i don't know you know, but that's the idea and so you're using emotional manipulation playing upon uh, human emotions as a means of hooking that in so he claims that the mormons are love bombers so anyway all right okay now next email great email by the way uh from gervais nicholas edward charmley one of your favorites Love this guy. Okay, just this this guy is on it, and apparently he's a pastor too. So if you have the opportunity to hear this guy preach, 
based on his emails alone, I'm, I'm going to say that this, this guy understands the gospel. And not only that, the email I got from him today, here's what he says. My father gave me a copy of the 1986 edition of CFW Walther's The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel. In fact, his father gave it to him for Christmas. And he says, I read it at once, obviously over several days. Yeah, it's it's a thick book. You don't do it in a day. You know, even though it's, you know, it's it thin, the, the hardcover edition is pretty thin. Each each um, page is kind of like a really thick cheesecake. You know what I'm talking about? One of those chocolate mousse. My wife made this for Josh when he went away you know, the night before he left for the Navy. Um, my wife made this peanut butter Reese's chocolate cheesecake and i i kid you not i don't know how she did it you know it was it looked professional but it probably had a thousand calories per fork bite i kid you not walther's book on the proper distinction of law and gospel is like one of those books the only book that i've read that's thicker as far as you know that that i mean is way thicker it's heavy in calories heavy in cal heavy in theological calories and these are not the kind of calories that will make you fat they they will they will make you a better theologian is um is uh, Martin Chemnitz's book on the two natures of Christ. Oh, my goodness. That takes a year to get through, okay? And you get through that a paragraph or two at a time. It's that thick. It's that good. Great book, by the way. Chemnitz, if you ever have an opportunity to read some of, something by Martin Chemnitz, those of you who want to do some advanced theology, um, his Locate Theologicae, brilliant. His Examination on the Council of Trent, outstanding. Um, his Enchiridion, amazing. Um, his book on the two natures of Christ, that is beyond bafflingly good. And it's really, 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 really juicy, thick with good theology. So I just want to pass it on. All right. So we continue. Uh, it says, um, so reading it, uh, reading it, I thought about how important this book is and how vital Walther's teaching on dividing law and gospel properly is in the Christian ministry. Although the lectures were given in the 1880s because they are based on the scriptures, they are as relevant and up to the minute you know, as anything else out there. He's right. Now, his remarks, and in, in, uh, Gervais is uh, quoting a, por- a portion from the book here about uh, Walther's remark, uh, remarks about rationalist preaching. Okay, the rationalists were very popular back at the tail end of the uh, 19th century. He says his remarks regarding uh, rationalist preaching reminded me as soon as I read them of many of the bad evangelical sermons that you review on your show. They are found. And so he's quoting from Walther's book, page 158 and 159. Here it is. Quote, this is Walther. Isn't it great that we get to have Walther on our program? (laughs) Walther says, about 120 years ago, rationalism had become dominant in the so-called Protestant Church of Germany. Okay, so this is, well, we've got the rationalists. Okay, yeah, this uh, so 17th, uh, no, 18th century. Okay, it was the time of the deepest, I'm going to mess this word up because he's got a better language than that. He's got better language. Ignomy. Okay, it, it was at the time of the deepest ignomy and humiliation that the nation had ever passed through when defection from the gospel had become complete. The shallowest minds, the most brainless men without any considerable learning were regarded as great lights and far ahead of their age. For theologians to achieve some renown, all that was necessary was sufficient boldness or rather audacity to declare the mysterious doctrines of Christianity, errors of former dark ages, which had been without enlightenment, and to treat the doctrine of God, virtue, and immortality as the real kernel of the Christian religion. 
During this awful time, uh, matters finally came to such a pass, the rationalistic preachers, to counteract the idea that they were superfluous in this, in this world, had to prove their usefulness, would treat from the pulpit subjects like these. Intelligent agriculture. <laughs> that would be really relevant. You see, can you, we, you can, can't you see this happening back then? Okay, the, these rationalist preachers uh, in Germany uh, during, the, uh, during the 18th century, 1700s, okay, you still have a mainly agrarian culture. We, we don't have major, major cities, and, and we don't have suburb, suburban sprawl and stuff like that. I mean, there's small towns, and there's, there's some smaller cities. And so with that majority of your people being farmers, um, you can do a sermon on intelligent agriculture. Wouldn't that be seeker-sensitive in a, in a farming community? Oh, yes. Here we go. The profitableness of potato raising. <laughs> Tree planting, a necessity. The importance of genuine sanitation. Oh, I would love a great sanitation sermon, wouldn't you? It wouldn't really be relevant because then we have sewers now. Rationalistic books of sermons in which subjects of this description are treated with grand pathos will show you that I am not slandering the rationalists of that age. So apparently he had, there was proof. We, we should find some of these. I would like, folks, if you have any books, any old books where the, the books of sermons from rationalist preachers and you can send me the profitableness of potato raising, please let me know how I can get a hold of this. This would be a scream. Okay, so we continue. Some rationalists were ashamed of these typical products of the school of rationalism. In 1772, a book was published which bore the title of The Usefulness of the Ministry Written for the Consolation of My Colleagues. The author was uh, Joachim Spalding, a writer of some renown in his day. And his book, he states that subjects like those that I mentioned are indeed not proper subjects for pulpit efforts. Neither is a seven-day sex challenge, by the way. He submits his own opinion to this effect. If sermons are to be useful, the preacher must never speak of the doctrines of faith first because they only serve to confuse people's minds. Huh? But he must present exclusively practical ethical lessons. This sounds like Rick Warren. It is not surprising then that in those days, many souls whose hearts were agitated by the question, uh, what must I do to be saved, quit their devastated church and either fought, sought refuge with the sect of the Morovians or even turned to the spurious church of Rome. Yeah, that's right. 1772 or 2008. Rationalism never changes anything except its name. Brilliant email. Brilliant email. He's right. Jervis uh, Nicholas Edward Charmley. From the UK is absolutely right. 1772 or 2008. Yeah, and by the way, I, I, I misspoke. It's the late 18th century, not 19th, late 18th century, 1700s. God, pay attention to that. But, but rationalist sermons, the profitableness of potato raising. I would like to see a copy of the profitableness of potato raising. That just sounds like it would be worth its weight in gold, don't you think? All right. Okay. Um, all right. I'm trying to look here. I've got to make a decision on what I want to talk about. We've got a lot of email. And we're going to get to the Trinity today, too. I, I promised that yesterday. Okay. Um, we'll start this one now. And then uh, the rest of the emails we'll get to tomorrow. This will be our last email of the day. Uh, Nathan uh, Rin Ryan, I, he emails me, and he takes me on on something. Okay. He was re referring back to my comment about what, what Rick Warren said at the Muslim Public Affairs Council. And uh, and basically the idea – Rick Warren said that we need to uh, – you know, that Muslims and Christians need to work together to solve the world's problems. 
Okay. Well, I basically made the claim that, uh, hey, you know, here's the problem with that is that we're not called as a church to work with Muslims to solve the world's problems. Okay. And uh, Nathan is accusing me of kind of dis- uh, muddling up the two kingdoms. And let me read his email. He says, so he asked the question kind of snarkily because, you know, I ask snarky questions too. So it's okay if you ask me a question in a snarky tone. He says, so acting as a creature of God in the kingdom of the left with the doctrine of vocation, a Muslim doctor and Christian doctor can't work together to find a cure for cancer, solve the world's problems, he puts in parentheses. Okay, now this is a great question. Okay, he says, or Christians ought to, or ought not uh, Christians to be pursuing such goals as not as though this is our most important goal, though, right? Great question. So we got to keep, you know. So basically, he's accusing me of, you know, when Rick Warren says that we can work with Muslims, that uh, that somehow my position is is that that means that we can't work with non Christians. Okay, um, no, that's not what I proposing at all okay my issue is is that pastor rick warren is uh oh that's right a pastor okay which means that he's supposed to be pastoring a church and that when he speaks he's speaking as a pastor okay in other words he's a representative of the church which is the body of christ and uh and so in that case i i don't have a problem i I employ non-Christians here in my company. Can you believe that, John? <laughs> yes. I've employed non-Christians. I've worked with non-Christians, and uh, and I don't. I, not a single guilt pang has come across uh, come across my heart as a result of working with non-Christians. Okay. Why? Because in the, in the doctrine of vocation, I, you know, I don't have to separate myself from non-Christians when I'm out there working to make a living. Okay. And uh, if two doctors are working together, one a Muslim and the other a Christian, to find a cure for cancer, I don't consider that to be a kingdom of the right issue. That's not a church issue. And a Christian doctor has every right to work with whomever to find a cure for cancer. Okay? My issue, if you go back to what Rick Warren was saying and what he did, is that Rick Warren was speaking as a pastor. He was a representative of the Christian church. And as a representative of the Christian church, he was calling for Christians, as a pastor, to work together with Muslims to solve the world's problems. Okay? Which is a confusion of what's going on here. Okay? So let's, in fact, let's listen to Rick Warren for a few minutes. I've got the uh, video of uh, Rick Warren's appearance at MPAC. And let's, let's hear what he has to say because I think it's important. Let me rewind the tape here. We'll get this rolling. Do, 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 do. Assalamu alaikum. I want you to know how deeply and profoundly and truly humbled I am to be with you here tonight. Of all the people in the world, you invited me. I love Maharatut, the founder of Impact. He, uh, he is a dear friend of mine. He is a genius. If you haven't read his book on justice, you need to read his book on justice. Now, notice what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm, I'm keeping this in context, okay? 
And there's a reason why I'm keeping this in context is because I want you, you know, we're going to play large segments of this and answering this question to see if Rick Warren as pastor Rick Warren, if what he's calling for is uh, a confusion of what the church should be doing. If you haven't read his book on justice, you need to read his book on justice. Oh man, I hope this doesn't stop on me. We're having small technical issues. The uh, the MPAC server has slowed down. <laughs> Not fun. What do you do in a case like this? You you're 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 trying to download the movie, right? And uh, the server has all of a sudden gone slow. Ay 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 ay. Do you do what do you do? You do a little light, you know, tap dancing. Da 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 da. I don't know. <laughs> We're. We have carpet in here. I don't think that will work. Well, then, wouldn't that be called soft shoe then? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm waiting for their server to respond, and it's apparently not responding. So, well, you can tell people where they can get the book. Which book? Oh, you want me to? You want me to plug the book again? Yeah. Where Where do you get that book? Oh, you mean Christianity and liberalism? Uh, yes. Okay. Okay, while we're waiting for the Muslim Public Affairs Council uh, thing from Rick Warren to come in off their very, 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 very slow server, um, I want to remind you, January's featured ebook of the month is Christianity and Liberalism by Jay Gresham Machen, and you can get it at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the cover, which is on our homepage for the month of January, and if it's not there, click on store and you can see it. And uh, for like a third of the cost of a trade paperback... Which is what it would cost, you know, if it would be like fifteen bucks. Otherwise, you can purchase this ebook version of Christianity and Liberalism, and the good news is all the proceeds go to support Pirate Christian Radio, which is which is important because. Uh, and how much is five ninety five a piece? Five ninety five a piece. All right. Well, here I am waiting for Rick Warren to come in, and uh, let's see if we've gotten any farther here. It's it's as if it's stopped. If you haven't read his book on justice, you need to read his book on justice. Okay. Yep, it it's just frozen. <sighs> I want to do this segment. <laughs> but Muslim Public Affairs Council video has uh decided to go to a crawl. Tell you what, we're going to take our we're going to take a break and uh, when we come back, we'll either continue with this or we'll move on to a di- different story. It's hold on. If we can't get to this today because the impact server's too slow, we'll do it tomorrow. All right. So uh, we're going to go to our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard so far, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And if you're listening on a different radio network, Fighting for the Faith goes like for two hours. You don't want to miss the next hour. Visit us at fightingforthefaith.com and listen to the second hour. We'll be right back. Sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, 
Put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com. Or the big picture audio presentation, Bible in an Hour, by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation theology made accessible. We're back, and you are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and we solved our technical problems. It was a buffering issue. Now, buffering, that is not what happens when you go to the gym and work out. You know, the the act of getting buff. Oh, I thought it was a polishing. (laughs) Of course, I've... I've never if, if going to the gym and getting buff is something that uh, I've never done buffering then. That just wanted to let you know that's not what that means. And also, by the way, the the word bigamist, okay, that is not the Italian word for fog. <laughs> A bigamist, you know. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't try that. Anyway, okay, we're in <laughs> you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. We're in the middle of answering a question from. Uh, uh, from an emailer who was basically concerned that maybe I was mixing the two kingdoms when basically saying that we've got a problem here as far as being unequally yoked with Muslims, okay? And the, 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 I'll tell you this. The way I heard Rick Warren say this, and this is why we're going to play this in context, the way I heard Rick Warren say this, it, you know, he's speaking as a pastor. He's speaking uh, you know, as a representative of the Christian church to Muslims, and uh, he makes some comments. And so I'm going to play this in context so we can all hear this. And uh, without any further ado, we got it. We got it. Here we go. Assalamu alaikum. I want you to know. And may the force be with you, too. Know how deeply and profoundly and truly humbled I am to be with you here tonight. Of all the people in the world, you invited me. I love Maharatut, the founder of Impact. He, uh, he is a dear friend of mine. He is a genius. If you haven't read his book on justice, you need to read his book on justice. By the way, you know that fundraising? That was pretty good, wasn't it? Now, I always say, do your giving while you're living, then you'll be knowing where it's going. 
I don't understand the people who wait till they die to give. When, when it comes to giving, some people just stop at nothing. And actually, I tell Christians in my church, I say, you know, uh, you've seen these bumper stickers. I say, if you love Jesus, tithe. Any fool can honk. <laughs> Let me just get this over real quickly. I love Muslims. Because it's all about you, Rick. I also happen to love Hindus and Jews and Buddhists. <laughs> now, this one will shock you. I happen to love Democrats and Republicans. And for the media's purpose, I happen to love gays and straights. So, I... <laughs> Guess they have a big gay crowd there. Gay Muslims? You know... Um, I wonder if they have a T-shirt. There are there are there are Muslim countries under Sharia law that uh, let's just say they still practice the death penalty when it comes to homosexuality. So, okay, so we've got it out there. Rick loves everybody. Okay, why? Well, he's going to say because God says to love it. You know, love everybody, including your enemies, right? And you know, and in we do, understand, folks. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. So Rick Warren technically isn't our enemy. All right, the devil is. Um, and so, you know, I understand in a sense where he's coming from here, but let's continue so you can hear these in context. You know what? I can't even get my wife to agree with me on everything. So why should we expect to agree on everything? I mean, I have five people in my family. We all like five different kinds of music. Does that limit my love for them? Of course not. Whoever came up with the idea that you have to agree with everybody on everything in order to love them? A uh, straw man. I, who's out there making that argument? Uh, who can you, anybody point me to a very specific Christian leader who is basically saying, with the exception of who's that wild that wild guy in the Westboro Baptist Church guy? You know who I'm talking about? God hates he. he oh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That guy. Wow. Okay, but do you see a lot of people that are the, of that ca that particular ilk in Christianity? Okay, that if you unless you absolutely agree with me, I can't love you. I'm going to make love contingent upon whether or not you agree with me. Who's making that argument? Anybody? I don't know of anybody. I don't even think James Dobson makes that argument, does he? Yeah, you know, I worked for Jim Dobson for many years, or for actually for a couple of years, many years ago. And uh, I don't remember folks on the family basically saying, unless you agree with everything, we can't love you. So this is what I call a straw man argument. It's almost it's getting your eye off the ball. It's like if, if you if, who's I want to know who's making the argument in Christianity, unless you agree with everything that we believe straight down this particular line, we can't love you. OK, I, I'm not making that argument at all. All right. All right. You see, I'm commanded to love. We are told in scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. Right on. Law, yeah. And I love you. Um, let me make another statement here. Uh, I'm just dieseling right now, and that is, we're all immigrants. Even Native Americans came from somewhere. Across the Aleutian Islands or wherever... 
but we're all immigrants. And America is as much a Muslim right for Muslim Americans as it is a Jewish right for Jewish Americans or Christian Americans or atheist Americans or anybody else. I love America. And I love the idea. I love the idea stated by that great theologian, Rodney King. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> Rick Warren, a representative of the Christian church and the Christian clergy, there... <sighs> That <laughs> the quotes don't get any better than this. I did not find this speech to be profound at all. <laughs> I think it's historic that we have a first-generation uh, immigrant who's just been elected president. I think that's historic. I really is. Now I do a lot of travel. Uh, I was recently on a trip where we did 46,000 miles in 45 days, literally ran around the world. And in every country I went into, we met with government leaders, with religious leaders, and with um, business leaders for a thing we call the peace plan. And uh, I've noticed that, uh, you know, I always thought Christians were misunderstood until I started hearing about Muslims. <laughs> Have you figured that one out? <laughs> yeah. And I've noticed two things. The media almost never gets it right. And I've also noticed that the media loves conflict. They don't like peace. There's no story in that to them. They want conflict. And if they can't get it, guess what? They'll create it. Got to stop for a second here. Um, this is interesting. Because I know some people who are Muslim scholars who are Christians or people, you know, Christians who study Islam. And, uh, you know, I've read their books and uh, they point to the fact that Islam is, is v v very antithetical, highly hostile to Christianity and Judaism and other religions. The favorite term that they have for us among fundamentalist Muslims is infidel. Wow. Now, uh, did NBC and CNBC and uh, CNN and uh, Fox News invent the infidel thing? Well, from what you just said, no, no, I don't think so. So he, I just, I just want to point this. We got to do. We, I can't play Rick Warren without doing a little commentary. Okay, so we got Rick Warren at this point. He's kind of setting this thing up, basically saying that Muslims are misunderstood. And I'm just looking at this, going, really, is that really what's going on? That they're misunderstood because the media has misportrayed them. Is that really what's going on here? Or are American Muslims uh, similar to their Christian cousins, uh, you know, n politically correct and really not taking their religion all that seriously? Yeah, I would th I would think that uh, there are fundamentalist Muslims in, in uh, parts of the world that would basically say American Muslims are not really good Muslims, Okay. And that's uh, in reading uh, what they say, you know, and what's been studied re just regarding the Quran. Anyway, we continue. They will create it. And I will say to you, as I've said to many, many people around the world, uh, let me just be frank. Al-Qaeda no more represents Islam than the Ku Klux Klan represents Christianity. They... They're just, they're not what we're about, they're not what you're about. 
And I have many, many dear neighbors and friends sitting down here, like Talal Bedun and Mesun and Yasser, my next-door neighbor, and so many that I, I love. My life changed about six years ago. Um, three things happened. I had, uh, when I, I started Saddleback Church in, uh, in Orange County uh, 28 years ago. I was 25 years old. Uh, I moved uh, to uh, Southern California from Texas, where I just finished my, uh, my uh, master's degree. And um, we arrived at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. No money, no members, no building. I didn't know a single person in the Saddleback Valley. And uh, I arrived at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of rush hour traffic in L.A. Now, you've got to understand, I'm a country boy. I, I was raised up in Northern California uh, in a little town of less than 500 people. And when I got to uh, Southern California, I looked around on the freeway and I said, God, you got the wrong guy. What, what, am, what in the world am I doing here? And we pulled off an off-ramp and we went into a real estate office. I found the first real estate office. This is January 1, 1980. And I met a guy named Don Dale, and I said, my name is Rick Warren. Uh, I'm 25 years old. Uh, I'm here to start a congregation. Um, I don't have any members. I don't have any building. I don't know anybody in the area. Uh, and I don't have any money, and I need a place to live. And he did what you just did. He laughed. <laughs> to make a long story short, within two hours, that man had found us a condo. We signed the papers on it. He got us the first month rent-free and nothing down. And that man became the first member of my church. As I was going to, uh, to uh, this real estate, we were driving to this uh, um, uh, little condo, and I said, hey, Don, you go to church anywhere? He goes, no, no, I hate church. I said, great, you're my first member. <laughs> I said, I'm starting a church for people who hate church. <laughs> and so we started. I actually held the first service. My wife and I, uh, I preached the first sermon to my wife. She didn't like it. She said, it's too long. It's been downhill ever since. Uh, fast forward that to uh, this week. Uh, I, before I came here tonight, I did the first of 16 Christmas services for the nearly 50,000 people who will show up for Christmas uh, this week at Saddleback Church. It's a 120-acre campus, over 100,000 uh, members. And all my life, all I wanted to do was just pastor church for life. I love stability. Uh, I have now watched an entire generation grow up in South Orange County. And I've watched people who were born who now serve on my staff and watched them grow up through little childhood ages of toddlers and, and then watch them start, start to talk and to walk and then to go into grade school and then go through those awkward junior high years when nobody can figure out what we're thinking and then break your heart in high school and go off to college and come back and settle down and get a job. And, and I love that. I love stability. I know more about my community than any politician will ever will because I've been listening to their problems for nearly 30 years. And I care about them. And I love them. Now, okay, just real quick, is, is he speaking as a pastor in your mind? No. Okay, what is – what? Uh, this sounds like a motivational guy. Okay, it sounds like a motivational guy. But he's telling a story about his church, the church that he founded, the church – and he's speaking as a pastor, Right. Okay, and that's his job in his community is to pastor. Okay, so he's talking about the foundation of Saddleback. He's talking about himself as a pastor, talking about himself preaching, talking about the fact that he's watched an entire generation of people grow up. Right. Right. Okay. As his role as a pastor. 
All right, we continue. I was happy just doing that. I was not known nationally or anything. I really didn't want to be nationally known. That's why I never went on TV. You know, I got to question that for a second because he's proud about the fact that he's trained hundreds of thousands of pastors over the last 20 years. Okay. Um, just because you haven't been on TV doesn't mean you don't want to be known. Because he's been teaching pastors, hundreds of thousands of them over the past 20 years, how to be purpose driven. Right? I, I just one of the things I just I hear something like this and I go, you know, I just want to challenge that and just say, you know, just because you didn't go on, didn't wasn't a televangelist, doesn't necessarily mean that you didn't care about being known because uh, you did something to be known and that's you personally wrote a curriculum and come up with a method for doing church. You've branded it as purpose driven. You're the creator of purpose drivenism and you've trained hundreds of thousands of pastors around the world at conferences at your church on how to be purpose driven. Does that sound like somebody who's just interested in, I mean, it's not like Rick Warren just accidentally became famous, is it? No, no, I don't think so. Cause I didn't want to be a quote televangelist. I don't like those guys. I just, I just don't happen to like them. Uh, I'm not putting them down. It's just not my style. And I just wanted to be a local church pastor and care for people in that village. Oh, Pastor Rick, he's been there for 40 years. He doesn't behave like a village pastor. And then three things happened six years ago. Number one, my wife got cancer, uh, breast cancer. And uh, uh, while she was going through all of that, she had had an experience. One day she was laying on the couch and she read a magazine and it said 14 million children orphaned by AIDS in Africa. And my wife was shocked by that. And she said, I had to admit, I didn't know a single orphan. She said, I couldn't imagine 14 million orphans just by one disease, AIDS, much less uh, 14 million in the world. Well, we now know there are 146 million orphans in the world. It's a big passion of mine, uh, dealing with the orphans around the world. Uh, but uh, she said, I, I didn't even think about it. She said, I, just, I was so shocked, I dropped the magazine. And she said, you know, I kind of heard a voice, God speaking to me. And God said, you know, Kate, you can either let this pain into your heart and it'll change your life and I will use you to make a difference for good in the world. Or you can get on with your life as a soccer mom, suburban, pastor's wife, you know, Bible teacher, whatever. My wife is the most courageous woman I've ever met. And she said, I don't know what this means, but I'm willing to become a spokesman for AIDS. When she first came to me and she began to talk to me about it, I go, well, that's great, babe. You supported me in my vision. And uh, this, look what's happened. And I'm going to support you. And we've been a partner now for 33 years. And so we're going to support each other. Now, it's not my vision, but I support you. But you know, the more she talked about it, the more it began to grab me. Okay. The video just stopped. <laughs> it hung. And it's hanging still. Oh, no bueno. Don't know what happened. It's not a buffering problem. This is not this is not a buffering issue anymore. What's what's missing from his his Christ? Oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah. A, a pastor speaking. Yeah, and the, he's missing Christ. Hard to do. How do you? You know, okay? This is a pastor speaking at a Muslim event. Did he bring Christ? No, he brought Rick Warren. Because everybody wants to know whether or not Rick Warren loves Jews and and 
Muslims and and homosexuals and 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 because I mean ultimately that's what matters, right? And and nice touching stories. Yeah, these are I'm not exactly weeping at this point, but um, you know we're we're now experiencing more technical difficulties regarding this thing. You know, so how do I get this quote? Is probably the question. <clears throat> so. Anyway, you, you got the flavor of what's going on here. Let me see if I can pull this up using uh, the cache that I had with my real player, okay? Because w- w- what did I do? I used this uh, real, uh, you know, I used the real player to play the thing from the uh, the news story. Cache, the computer term. Yeah, not C A S H, but C A C H E. Cache, cache. Is that what it is? Um, let's see here. Features. Well, let's let's play it. See, see if this is it. Public, here it is. We'll just jump right to it. So you, you get the flavor of what Rick Warren was saying, and uh, it, the flavor of what he was basically. He's speaking as a pastor. He hasn't brought Christ. He's talking about himself and all the things that he did. And let's let's hear this uh, this uh, story. Hi, again. I'm Steve Julian, host of Morning Edition on eighty nine point. Oh, that's right. We have to play this three. They have a they have a radio spot. You know, uh, an advertisement. Prior to the before we get to the actual news story, this is from uh, public radio. Can't believe I've been reduced to playing this because of technical problems. More than a thousand Muslims packed the Long Beach Convention Hall for the annual banquet of the Muslim Public Affairs Council. Executive Director Salam Al Mariati says he invited Warren to speak because he's a new kind of evangelical Christian. People like Rick Warren represent a change in the paradigm from one of confrontation to one of accommodation and cooperation between Christians and Muslims. Assalamu alaikum. The 54-year-old Warren began with the traditional Arabic greeting. It means peace be upon you. Let me just get this over real quickly. I love Muslims. And for the media's purpose, I happen to love gays and straights. In the past, Warren's also said he thinks homosexuality is unnatural and equated approving gay marriage to condoning incest. He backed Proposition 8, the constitutional amendment banning same-gender marriage that California voters approved last month. President-elect Obama, who opposed Prop 8, has come under fire from gay activists for inviting Warren to deliver a prayer at his inauguration. My attitude is you don't have to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. And this is what Barack Obama and I happen to agree on. Warren heads one of the largest evangelical congregations in the nation, Saddleback Church, in Lake Forest in Orange County. He espouses traditional conservative views. He's also urged Christians to do more to fight poverty, AIDS, and global warming. Warren invited Muslims to join him. There are a billion Muslims in the world. There are about two billion Christians in the world. If just the two of us could get together to start working on these problems, that'd be half the world. Sajid Vera of... Okay, so there's the quote. Now, unfortunately, we don't get to hear this in its exact context. Why? Well, because that... We're having technical difficulties. <laughs> okay, so Rick Warren, he's talk, he talked about what we've heard so far. We talked about the fact that he's founded Saddleback. He talked about the fact that he knows everyone. He knows more about the community because he's their pastor. He's seen generations grow up. And he was telling the story of how basically 
his wife challenged him to look at these problems. He real and the punchline comes later in the story, which we won't get to today because of technical issues, is that he realized that that he traveled to Africa. That there was a small, there was a tiny church in Africa that was poverty stricken that was taking care of a bunch of orphans and that 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 little church with no resources was doing more to take care of orphans than Saddleback Church in rich Orange County was doing and that that was a big eye opener to him and then you know basically he's become an advocate for taking care of orphans you know, dealing with poverty and all that kind of stuff and i basically say i don't have a problem with rick warren out there fighting aids or uh or taking care of the poor in fact christians really need to be doing this you you know serious and the, you know, if your neighbor is in need, and uh, and you're you're as a Christian, you have the means of helping him. Shame on you, shame on you. That's what I have to say. Okay, so that's my position on this. Okay, but the question is, is that is Rick Warren in calling on Muslims and and Christians to work together to solve poverty? Okay, I've got a problem with that. That's because he's speaking of us as, in in terms of religious groups. Okay, he's speaking as a Christian pastor. He's clearly there as a Christian. He's a new kind of Christian. Okay, and so he's representing Christianity. Is this calling for somebody to work in their vocation to solve poverty? Or is this basically saying we're going to syncretistically work together churches and mosques to solve the, the poverty issue? Okay. Um, how I heard Rick Warren, it, it's more, cl- a lot closer to the second syncretistically. Okay. That somehow we, we're going to have some Christian coalition to do this and go to the one.org website. I mean, the, the name says it all one, right? You know, one.org and that one Sabbath that they were doing, you know, I, there's a link up to it at, at a little 11. Can we syncretistically work with other religions to solve the world's problems as, with 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 the name the moniker as christian you know chris rosebro i'm not a you know i'm a christian yes but i'm not a church i'm not me personally i'm not an official uh religious organization okay i'm an individual christian and in my vocation i've worked with many people of different religions and denominations and and perspectives okay and i have not a problem with that but we're not are we calling on people to to uh to work in their vocation to solve this problem? Or is Rick Warren talking about syncretistically working with people of other religions to do it? I think it's closer to the second one. And that I think is the problem. Okay. Christians ought to be out there working to feed the poor and taking care of their neighbor, loving their neighbor as their self and bringing the gospel with them. The thing is, is that you work with Muslims you know, I'm here with, you know, with with this Muslim gentleman and we're here to solve your poverty problem. Um, the Muslims going to be sharing the message of Islam and I'm going to be sending you know, basically the message of Christianity. And we're going to be at odds with each other as to, you know, who, who gets the right to share the, their 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 religious message with these poor people. Right. OK, it's not as if there isn't some kind of a uh, of a weight attached to this you know when muslims reach out to the poor why are they doing it? it's because god has commanded them to give alms okay and that's their way of trying that's one of the ways they try to convince people to become a muslim we've taken care of you right they've we've shown you love wow allah is loving right okay so i don't think i'm guilty of mixing the two kingdoms here i think rick warren is 
Okay, and I don't have a problem with you know with some working in their vocation with with non with non Christians. It sounds like the Muslims are are inviting you to dinner, and then when they get done, they they hand you the bill. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we want you to pay for us to go to Africa so we can feed the poor and give them a Quran. You see, that's the thing. Devout. If you're working with Muslims. Would are we go, not going to expect them to bring the Quran with them and try to proselytize the people that they're reaching out to in the name of being a Muslim? Because the name they're bringing with them is Muslim, right? Oh yes. Okay, and the name we're bringing with us is Christian, right? Yes. Okay. So can we work with with a group that is counter proselytizing? I would say no. No, I have a, yeah, I've, no. We can't. But if you're working in a in a laboratory to find a cure for cancer. That company that exists, if it's Merck or any of the other big pharmaceuticals, um, Merck doesn't exist to share the gospel. Merck doesn't exist to make people who are converts to a religion. Merck works to, you know, to create drugs to solve medical problems. That's not religious. Okay? That's vocational. Okay? Muslims, they bring, they bring a religious message with them. And when you br- work with them under the name of Muslim and you work uh, you know, as as Christians under the name of Christian, at this point, why are we why would we want to work with a group that ultimately is trying to proselytize people to bring them to Islam? And if we understand Christianity correctly, um, they're sending people to hell, right? I would rather spend my time working with groups that will work with the poor, show Christ's mercy to the poor. And bring the gospel with them to boot, not the Quran. You know, I I don't want to be at odds in that way. So, and I don't think Christians should be either. Okay, Trinity, we got a we got like a half hour left. Okay, I told you yesterday we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, um, real quick, the I I know I've done this before, but it's always worth reviewing this. Okay. Um, what does Christianity teach regarding the Trinity? Okay, simple doctrinal statement. We believe that's Christians. We believe teach in accordance with the decree of the Council of Nicaea. Okay, we believe the Council of the the decree of the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed that comes out of that council are a correct summary of what God's Word teaches. That there is one divine essence which is called and which is truly God, and that there are three persons. This is one divine essence, equal in power and alike. And eternal God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three are one divine essence. They are eternal, without division, without end of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, one creator and preserver of all things, visible and invisible. And the word person is to be understood as the fathers employed them, the term in, in, in this connection, not as a part or a property of itself, but as that which exists of itself. Okay? So there's one God and three persons. Okay? It's not contradictory it's paradoxical now the reason why it's difficult for us to understand is because for us with every per you know there's with each being there's only one person okay the plain and simple that's what we're used to we're not we're not used to this other thing okay but that doesn't you know, but are we created are we created we're created right oh yes okay so um i mean yeah. that being the case um, we were created in God's image, but that doesn't mean that we're gods, that we don't carry all the properties of, of the deity. So here's the deal. Jehovah's Witnesses will be happy to point out this fact that the word Trinity nowhere appears in Scripture. Whoop-de-doo. The word Poughkeepsie doesn't appear in Scripture either, and yet Poughkeepsie exists. Okay? 
I just love that word. <laughs> you know where I where I really heard that word? My kids like this cartoon on the internet called Homestar Runner. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah you know yeah, what I'm talking about? That. Yeah. Homestar Runner. He speaks with this kind of a he, he has a weird way of talking, and when he says Poughkeepsie, it's really kind of funny. Matter of fact, they sell the T-shirts that he wears. Are you serious? Yeah, I've seen some around. The Homestar Runner T-shirts. Yeah. Anyway, that, so my <laughs> my kids like that cartoon, and I, I got They've shown me some pretty silly things on there. I, you know, I can understand why they like it. All right. So anyway, it's not a problem that the word Trinity doesn't exist. The word Trinity is basically a theologically constructed word that means that there is one God and three persons. It's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. Okay. And here's the deal: if anyone says to you they know exactly how the Trinity works. Um, don't believe him. We have no clue how it works. <laughs> okay. And we're, we're, we're in this position where we, we know it's true because the scriptures teach it. Okay. But the mechanics of the thing, I couldn't tell you, but the reality is, is I couldn't tell you the mechanics of how a Lamborghini Countach really works. Okay. You know, with the paddle shifters and all that kind of stuff, but I can tell you it's a great car. <laughs> and every time I see a photograph or a, a television show with the Lamborghini Countach on it, you know, I just, <laughs> right. Okay. I don't need to know how it works to know that, you know, that I, 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 it's a great, very fast sporty car. Okay. So here's the deal. Passages that teach that there's only one God. There's plenty of them. Let me just give you a few of them. Isaiah chapter 43, 10 and 11. We read that yesterday. Um, you know, uh, let me pull it up in my computerized Bible just to make sure we're doing this right. Isaiah 43, 10. Um, you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Is that clear? Okay. Very crystal. Uh, crystal clear. There were no gods formed before the the Lord Yahweh, and that's it's capitalized Lord, Yahweh. There are not going to be any gods made after him. Okay? He's the singular one God, okay? And this is where we get this. There's only one God, and this is why just that verse alone disproves Mormonism and, and the law of eternal progression. And I know they don't like it, and it's just too tough, okay? Because uh, there's a God, for, according to them, before um, Elohim. Right. Elohim had a God that yes. he was obedient to. Right. And then Elohim was exalted to Godhead through because by being obedient to his God. Notice that this law-based Okay, so okay, so here we go. Isaiah forty four six. This is what the Lord Yahweh says: Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last, and apart from me there is no god. Okay, there's none created before Him, none after Him, and apart from Him there is no god. How many gods are there? One. One. Okay, that's what the Scriptures teach. Okay, now in the Old Testament there are actually passages that hint at the doctrine of the Trinity, and I and I mean hint. They point to it. But they don't exactly teach it outright. But they they come to bear in a circumstantial evidence kind of way. For instance, Genesis one twenty six, when God is getting ready to make man, here's what he says. He says, let us make man in our image. Weird conversation going on there. What's this we stuff? Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. Who is God talking to? Okay. Can you uh, go back to the uh, Hebrew on that one? Well, see, that's the thing. The Hebrew gets really weird because, you know, the Mormons, they talk about Elohim, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, in Hebrew, this is important to know, the word for God is El. Okay. 
the ending him, so we get Elohim, okay? That ending, Elohim, is weird because the grammar is just bizarre. It says, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 already begins with some very strange language, okay? It says, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim is not a, per, is not a proper name. Elohim is the, is the Hebrew word for God, but it takes a plural form, yet the verbs and the pronouns that go with it are singular. He, God, created. Elohim created. That means, so you got, the, you, literally, it's weird. The word for God there is plural. It's in a plural form, but everything else grammatically around it is singular. Does that make any sense? No. It hints at it. That's the point. Okay? So you have this very strange thing going on. Okay? Grammatically, you have God. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you were to take it literally, it says, in the beginning, God's, he created the heavens and the earth. Because that's how the verb form. The verb is taking the singular. Isn't that weird? Okay? So here you've got this strange thing going on in the, old, in the Hebrew Old Testament. You have the word for God taking its plural form, yet the, the verbs and the pronouns in the rest of the sentences, anytime Elohim appears, everything's singular. It doesn't make any sense. Okay? And then you have God in Genesis 1.26 saying, let us cr- uh, make man in our image. Okay? Let us make man. Who's, who, who's God talking to? What's going on here? Right? It really is a mystery until you, you, you kind of you know, pull it apart. So in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, there are things that hint at within the one God, there is some kind of a plurality occurring. Okay? Let me give you another example. Okay? The Shema, from, uh, which is you know, the famous passage from Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 uh, that the uh, Jews quote. So Deuteronomy 6, this is interesting. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay? Now, that's a strange word there, one. Okay? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word, therefore, one is the Hebrew word echad. Okay? And it has with it this understanding, this, this connotation that if, for instance, if I were to say I have one cluster, I have, uh, you know, when I point to a cluster of grapes, it's one cluster. Echad has that kind of, it's it's kind of a unity and, and plurality kind of a thing that goes with it. And it's really weird. So when you say the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Hebrew word there, Echad, is again hinting at something that that has some plurality to it, even though it's it's, it's a singular plurality. Does that make sense? Okay, hopefully I'm not losing you all here. Okay, so we've got Elohim. We've got uh, let us make man in our image. Who is God talking to? Well, it's real simple. When you understand that that in the one God, there's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son are talking together. They're speaking amongst themselves. Let us make man in our image. Okay, so now this is where it gets interesting. Okay, Hebrew... Old Testament is clear. There is only one God. Yet, there are three persons that are called God. Okay? 
Now, I'll give you one example of the Father being called God, and here's the fun thing. There's, I, I don't know of any reasonable biblical scholars that would deny that the Father is God. That's kind of a default setting, okay? But uh, John 20, verse 17, okay? Um, Jesus speaking to Mary, who's clinging to him in the garden after he's resurrected from the dead. John chapter 20, verse 17 says this. Jesus said to her, Mary, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to the brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father, your God, uh, to my God and your God. Okay, so Jesus says that the Father is God here. John chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus is saying that he's returning to the Father who is their God and his God. Okay, so is the Father God? Yeah, okay, and like I said, there's not a lot, I don't really know of any reasonable scholars out there that would question what the, the Godhood of the Father. Okay, now, this is where it gets interesting. Jesus is called God, and we reviewed some of these in other passages earlier in the week. John chapter 8, 58, we went through where Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 30, uh, where, Jesus, you know, where they're going to pick up stones to stone them because they, Jesus makes him out to, you know, himself out to be God, right? Um, John, uh, John chapter 20, verse 28, we did this earlier in the week where uh, Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, right? Okay. And Acts 20, 28, where it says that God purchased the church with his blood, when did God bleed in Jesus Christ? Okay. Uh, there's another one. There's a couple more. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Let's take a look at those. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Okay. I'll back this up to verse 5. And this is interesting. There's a parallelism going on here. You know what parallel, you know what a parallelism is? Not exactly. When you think of parallel, you think of train tracks. Okay. The train tracks run parallel to each other. You know, and so... There, there's something, there's a parallelism going on in, in this that doesn't make sense unless Jesus is God, and I'll explain it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Okay? Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay? Verse 6. Jesus, it says that Jesus is by nature, is being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay? So that says it very clearly that Jesus is by nature God. And when he came to earth as, you know, in his incarnation, he did not grasp after equality with God. God. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death and even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Okay? Verse 6 says that Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay? Now, here's where the parallelism comes in, and then I'll unpack this last part of it. Okay? Paul says your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. Right? Okay? And it, and he's pointed to Jesus and saying Jesus was by very nature God, and he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay? Now, this wouldn't make sense if you were to run it this way. Okay? Paul's talking about our attitude should be the same of Christ Jesus in relation to one another. Me as a man, you as a man. Right? Okay? Now, let's work this out. Um, John, you're a man. Yes. Okay, last time I checked, you're actually a direct descendant of Adam. 
Yes. Okay, so you and I are both descendants of Adam, right? Correct. Living roughly about the same generation. Yeah. Okay. And uh, just positionally, man to man, are we both equal? Man to man? Yeah, man yes. to man. Yes. Okay. So, yes. okay, there's, I can't say that, you know, I have some special humanity that makes me a better man than you. No. Okay. Just want to make sure. Okay. You know, I know you have a high opinion of me. <laughs> okay. So you and I, as far as our natures are concerned, we're equal, right? Man to yes. man. Okay. Now, watch this parallelism. It's kind of fun. It's, Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And he's talking about our, our attitude towards each other. It says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing in taking on the very nature of a servant. Okay, would this make sense if Jesus wasn't equal to God? Okay. Let's say that Jesus really wasn't by nature God, but he was uh, one of the creator, one of the things that God created, right? If Jesus was something that God created, wouldn't he by nature be something less than God? Oh, yes. Okay, so if... If Jesus is something less than God, then it's no great thing for him to consider himself to not be equal with God, isn't it? Wouldn't that be just like, duh? Okay, for instance, okay, do you consider yourself to be less than God? Less than God? Oh, yes. Okay, w- well, I mean, that's profound. Dude, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> it does. It, the thing falls apart is what I'm basically saying. It, because you by nature are not God. Right? Yes. Okay. Since you're not God by nature, it's no big deal if you don't consider yourself to be equal with God. That's correct. Okay. So you think it's a, if Jesus wasn't God, then what's the big deal? Why should my attitude be the same as Jesus if, he is, if, if he's less than God? Okay? It doesn't make any sense. If Jesus is by nature something less than God, it's, his attitude is actually in the right place for him not to consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay? Because I don't consider myself equal with God. Not even close. Okay. So there's a parallelism that's running here. Okay. Jesus is by nature God and he became a servant. You and I are equal by nature. Okay. And and Paul wants us to consider ourselves to be servants of humanity. Okay. In in bringing them in. My job is to love and serve my neighbor. Okay. And to consider myself as less than you. To consider you as greater than me. That's what Paul is admonishing us to do in this passage. And this passage doesn't make a wink of sense if if Jesus isn't by nature equal with God. Okay? But there's a kicker in this one. Okay? And let me pull out my cross-references. Okay? Okay. And at the name of Jesus, therefore, okay. Okay. That at the name of Jesus. Oh, there it is. (laughs) Okay. There's a wonderful passage here. Folks, learn this one. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is cross. This is actually quoted directly from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter um, 45. Okay? And if you got your Bibles, okay... Go to Isaiah chapter 45. Let me add all context to this here. All right. We're going to start at verse 22. Yahweh speaking. He says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Oh, by the way, how many other gods are there? 
None. Okay, believe me when I tell you, it's not hard to find passages in the Old Testament that basically say there's only one God. And listen to this. God speaking, he says, By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Who, to whom are, is every knee going to bow? God. To Yahweh's, right? Yeah. Okay. Isaiah 45, verse 23, God speaking, he says that to him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Okay. And when you read that, keep that in mind. This is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. Let's go back to Philippians. It says, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who is Jesus? He's the Yahweh of the Old Testament. God himself swore and said it would not return to him, return to him that, at, that every knee would bow to him. Yet, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Who does that make Jesus out to be? Makes him to be God. Absolutely. So we got the Father is God and Jesus is God, right? Okay. Um, let me let me let me get, throw in a, just a couple more verses because we have the time. Colossians chapter two. This is the passage I wanted to get to the other day and I didn't. Okay. Listen to this one. Colossians chapter two. <laughs> this is wonderful. Okay, starting at verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. For in Christ, all fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That verse, Colossians 2 verse 9 says that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. How many deities are there? One. And the fullness of the one deity lives in Jesus Christ in bodily form. In other words, this is really kind of crass Spanish. Jesus is Dios con carne, God with meat, okay, God with flesh, okay. That's what Jesus is. That's what this says. And the and the word picture that's in the Greek here is that Jesus is like the uh, the, the 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 stamp, the the signet stamp of God in you know in human form. That's really what it, it, it's pointing to, okay. And then you got this wonderful passage in Titus chapter 2 also. Titus Titus chapter 2, verse 13 is what we're going to look at. Um, but I'm going to read it in context. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13, the important one. While we wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Love that verse. Paul says here that Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior. Now, remember, we talked we talked a couple days ago about how the fact that Jesus accepted worship and only God accepts worship. So no doubt about it. The Father is called God in the scriptures and Jesus is called God in the scriptures. No, I mean, make no bones about it. What about the Holy Spirit? Funny enough, we have a couple of passages that help us there too. Go to Acts chapter 5. Okay, if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 5. 
And this is a tragic story of a couple of people who decided to uh, lie to the Apostle Peter and uh, regarding sell, the, you know, the sale price of a property. And uh, they were supposedly getting praise from their brothers, and yet they were lying about something. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it, laid it at the feet of the apostles. Now, it's not the problem isn't that he didn't give the full amount. is that he was acting like he was giving the full amount for the, for the, uh, to the apostles. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Okay. Verse 3, who did Ananias lie to? Holy Spirit. Lied to the Holy Spirit. That you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. So here Peter is equating the Holy Spirit with God. Okay? Right? Okay, so there, there's that one. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. We're going to look at thir- Acts chapter 13. Okay, listen to this. In the church at Antioch, we'll start at verse 1, there were prophets and teachers, and Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who's been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the Holy Spirit is the one who said, set apart for me the work to which I have called them. Who's the Holy Spirit acting like? He's acting like he's God. Okay, and, and, you know, isn't wasn't Paul set apart by God? That's what Paul says over and over at the opening of his epistles, that he was set apart by God. Yet here it says the Holy Spirit set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. So after that, they fasted and prayed and placed their hands on them and sent them off. So the Holy Spirit here is behaving like none other than God. And of course, so here we go. This is how it works out. We don't know the mechanics of it, but we know from the Old Testament, that there's only one God. There's a hint at this plurality within the within the deity when it says Elohim, which is the plural for the Hebrew plural for God, and where it says, "Let us make man in our image." And even in the word Echad, that appears in Deuteronomy six four. So there's hints at some kind of a plurality within the unity of God. It's it's it's, it's there in the language, and you can tease it out. But then in the New Testament, the Father is called God, Jesus is called God, the Holy Spirit is called God. Yet the holy the scriptures are clear: there is only one God. Okay. Now this is where it, it gets interesting. In the Old Testament, we talk about the plurality. In the New Testament, we actually have an interesting thing happening where there's a singularity, okay? Kind of the opposite. Go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, this is the Great Commission passage, okay? And this is interesting. In the Old Testament, we have the plurality, let us make man in our image. Now watch how this works in reverse, okay? So then Jesus came to them and said, this is verse 18, chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, in the one, the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So uh, what are we what are we to make of that? Christ tells us to go baptize in the singular name of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Okay, and even the Jews understood that when Jesus called himself the Son of God, that he was making God his Father and making himself equal with God. So, you know, because he was claiming to be the same thing. So here's basically what it boils down to on the doctrine of the Trinity. We can say 
clearly that the Father is God. We can say clearly that the Son is God. We can say clearly, biblically, that the Holy Spirit is God. But the scriptures are clear that there are not three gods. There is only one God. Okay? Now, this is where it gets interesting. The Son is not the Father. Because Jesus, the Son, prays to the Father, says he's going to go to the Father, and he says that the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not the Father, and Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. Okay? And the Holy Spirit isn't the Father, and the Holy Spirit isn't the Son. And the Father isn't the Son, and the Father isn't the Holy Spirit. So there's three persons, one God. How does it work? Couldn't tell you. I can just basically say that God is some other kind of being than we are. And uh, trying to describe him, C.S. Lewis kind of describes it this way. Basically, it's like an oyster trying to explain how a, what, it, what a human is. Okay? So if, if we're trying to explain how this whole God, how this Trinity thing works, we're going to do a miserable job at it because it's like oysters trying to explain humans. Okay? You know, well, they don't have shells and... Uh, <laughs> You see what I'm saying? How, what, what, what's the language that an oyster would use to describe a human? Well, they, they, they walk about on, you know, with legs. Well, what's a leg? I, you know, it, it's like a stick. <laughs> oh, okay. And they, and, and, and do, you know, do they, and they breathe air. They, they don't, and they only swim in the water. They would die. In, oh, really? Okay. Well, we live in water. You know, you know what I'm saying? How does an oyster explain a human being to another oyster? Okay, so we have to go with what God has revealed about himself. So here's the deal. One God, three persons. It's clearly taught in Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity is comes from it. This is how God has revealed himself. How it works, don't know. Now, there are heresies that are rejected. The Arian heresy, which is the heresy of the Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach that Jesus is a lesser God. He's a created God. He's a God-like being. Okay, but uh, that's the that's the that's a heresy. That doesn't work. Philippians 2 makes it so that it doesn't work. If he's something less than God by nature, then equality with God is something, duh, he wouldn't be grasping that. Okay? Um, there, there's another heresy. Here's the $5 theological word for it. The Samosatines. Okay? Um, the modern-day Samosatines are the United Pentecostal Church, which teaches that there is one God who acts in three modes. Okay, so there's one God and he wears different hats. He wears the Jesus hat at one time. He wears the father hat at another time. And then he throws on the Holy Spirit hat. It just depends on what he's feeling like at that point. And so what happens is we have Jesus praying to the father or when, you know, Jesus is being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And what and you have the father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Well, in that particular case, you have basically Jesus being a cosmic ventriloquist. He's throwing his voice up into heaven, and he's creating some kind of a light show that makes it look like the Holy Spirit is, is, is descending like a dove, right? Okay, that doesn't work, and it's not in the court of Scripture. Uh, Mormons are rejected, the law of eternal progression, that God had a God who had a God who had a God who... That doesn't work. There were, before God was formed, there are no other gods. Islam, one God, one person. Okay. There is no plurality. There is no. There are no three persons in the God of Islam. There's only. There's one God and one person. Okay. Now, what's interesting is, is that understanding the doctrine of the Trinity, you begin to understand that love really becomes possible with a God that there's one person in those three person. What three persons in one being? Why? Because the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit loves the Son, and the Father. True love exists within within God's nature because there are three persons. Without that. 
okay, without the three persons, we I don't think we'd have a concept of love because that would not be something that God has by nature. And there's theologians who have made that argument through the ages, okay? So um, what it comes down to, if you claim to be a Christian uh, and you reject the doctrine of the Trinity, okay, you're worshiping an idol. You're worshiping a God that's different than the, as God has revealed himself. That's what it boils down to. So there we go. Okay. Christianity 101 on the doctrine of the Trinity and all kinds of technical problems on the Rick Warren thing. And one of the best, the best laid plans of mice and men. I think I qualify as the mouse today. Anyway. All right. We're at the end of our show. If you would like to email regarding anything you've heard. So well, in, in today's show, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless you.